The Bible has a really impressive integrity to it, that despite the fact that it was written over about a 1,500-year period by upwards of 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents, it has one consistent message. And the more I read the Bible, the more I'm in it, I'm just blown away by the integrity of it. Uh, what makes me think of it this week is I'm going to preach from that passage from Matthew chapter 3, and in my Bible, and probably the Pew Bibles as well, if I turn back just three pages, I get to the end of the Old Testament, and in this passage in Matthew 3, we've got John the Baptist coming in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. So when I go back to Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, his last two words are these, the last two verses. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Moses and Elijah, those two figures are the last, in the last two verses of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament starts with John the Baptist coming as the forerunner to Jesus. He's proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. He's saying, prepare the way. And John the Baptist was referred to as Elijah by Jesus himself. A little further in Jesus' public ministry, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and they went up onto the top of a high mountain. And before their eyes, he was transfigured and became glowingly bright. The glory of God was breaking through in him. And Moses and Elijah show up and speak to him. And they talk to him about his exodus from this world, talking to him about the cross. And on the way down the mountain, Peter, James, and John say, why is it that the prophets say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? And Jesus says, he, he did come first. And he was speaking of John the Baptist. It says in the text right there, in Matthew's gospel, it says that he was speaking of John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah. He was connecting the Old Testament to the New. He was, in a sense, the last of the Old Testament type of prophet. But he was in the New Testament. And he was marking the transition of a huge age. But I just marvel at how well-connected this book is. And I wonder, in that passage, what is it that was drawing people out into the wilderness? John the Baptist was out in a barren wilderness area. He was very eclectic. He was dressed in camel's hair. He had a belt of leather around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey, a very austere life. Um, and he was a prophet. And, and he was Jesus' cousin. Many of you know that. Mark doesn't tell us anything about John the Baptist's childhood, but Luke's gospel does. In fact, you might know this, the angel Gabriel came to John the Baptist's dad and told him that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and bear a child, and he would be this great prophet, John the Baptist. And Gabriel the angel says this. It's such an awesome story because Zechariah, his father, goes into the temple to do his duties. He was a priest, and the angel Gabriel met him in there and tells him this. He says, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And then it says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So the prophet Gabriel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son, he's going to be a great prophet, and he's going to be the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to turn people's hearts. 
See, I was wondering, why is it that hordes of people were leaving the holy city of Jerusalem and going out into the wilderness to hear this guy? You know, if you heard right now that some guy's preaching out in the middle of the, somewhere in Clay County, would you go? I mean, hordes of people go? No, not normally, at least. There'd have to be something to draw you. Well, what was drawing them is that the Holy Spirit had anointed him for this task, and the Holy Spirit was sending people out there. He was bringing them out because the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's something about his ministry that tapped into the latent expectation of God's people. 400 years of silence. The Old Testament prophet, the last one, ended. There was 400 years where God was totally silent. And they were hungry, and they were longing. And here comes this John the Baptist proclaiming things with an anointing on him and talking about the coming of the Messiah they were all longing for. Now, this season of Advent helps us build that kind of expectation in our life, in our life, in our hearts. He's coming back. The Lord is going to return. And Advent helps us build expectation and be mindful of that. It also is a time for us to take inventory. What's going on in my life? Am I ready? Uh, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like a New Year's resolution, but early. You make changes in your life. You change your mind about things. This whole passage is about repentance, and that word literally means change of mind. And I was talking to Heather yesterday, and she said, I'm thinking about letting our Y membership run out because I'm just not able to get there. It's not fitting my schedule. And I said, oh, that's a good idea because it'll clear, clear out room at the Y for all the people that come in January because of their New Year's resolution. <laughs> but that's an example. It's a simple one, but it's an example of a change of mind. She made a change of mind about something in her life. It doesn't have to be a bad thing to be a change of mind. And, and then a change of behavior that comes along with it. In my own life, while I'm thinking about exercise, I decided some time ago, a while ago, I was going to start running for exercise. This was back when I was in seminary. Bought a really high-quality pair of shoes, went to one of those fancy running stores so they could get me the right kind, and I start running, and I start having pain in my knee, in my hip, in my back. Not the kind of pain that you push through and it makes you stronger, the kind of pain that makes you think, maybe I shouldn't be running. And I repented. I changed my mind and I said, running is good for some people. It is not good for me. So I have other ways that I get physical fitness. But what I'm trying to communicate here is repentance is, it's a churchy word, but it doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean confession of sin. It means a change of mind. John the Baptist came on the scene and his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Change your mind. And when you change your mind about certain things, that's going to mean a change in behavior as well. So this text here has an invitation to us. And we're in a series. Uh, this, this series is called The Habits of Readiness. And we're getting ready for Christ to come back. This is going to happen. History is moving towards the time when Christ will return. And we want to be ready for it. So the habit I would like to suggest for you and I to put into our life is the habit of changing our mind. Now, I need to qualify. I don't mean being indecisive. I don't mean being the person who buys something and has buyer's remorse and takes it back three times. Or the person who, when the waitress comes and you're ordering your food, they change their order three times. They can't decide. That's a different kind of changing of your mind. I'm talking about the repentance kind where you have a set idea about something and you, you decide that's not good or it's not right for you or it's not the way you want to go. And you say, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to think this. And then you change and go over there a different, different way. So changing our mind. When was the last time you did this in your life? You had that kind of a change. 
Just think about that. Now, John the Baptist makes a really appealing call for repentance, I think, in this passage. And in a way to organize all this content in these 12 verses, I'm going to break it down into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the good would be the things in the passage that are positive. They, they make us want to live in repentance. They make us want to have a change of mind because there's a positive aspect about it. The bad would be the things that we want to make a change in our life because there's bad stuff in our life. And then the ugly I'll get to at the end. So good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's start with the good. I want to start, you know, with the good news first. Actually, this is all good news. I'm not calling God's word bad. This is, a, this is the good book. So everything in it is good, but there are things in it that are hard for us. So let's start with the good, um, the positive things. In verse 2, his message is, repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a change from the old ways. The old covenant did not have accessibility to God's kingdom like you and I have now in Christ. This is a positive thing. In Christ, we are able to approach God's kingdom and be part of it in a way that's different from how it was in the old covenant. That is a positive thing. We have a choice. We can change our mind, repent of our ways, let go of our old kingdom or thiefdom, sometimes I call it, and step into God's kingdom, or we can stay on the outside. This is the grand invitation of the gospel. Come in. You are welcome into God's presence, into his kingdom, into his ways. But you're going to have to change your mind. You're going to have to renounce any sense of lordship you have. You're going to have to renounce the world's systems. In other words, you're going to have to convert. It's an invitation to convert. And I'm telling you, the benefits of converting are so much higher. Do it, whatever the cost. Repent and come to the Lord. Become a Christian is what I'm saying. So the first thing that's positive here is the invitation in. There's access for you in Christ. Verse 3 and 11 talk about the king coming himself. John starts out by quoting Isaiah. When they asked who he was, who are you, weird prophet guy out in the wilderness? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that we were expecting that Moses talked about? Who are you? He quotes Isaiah and he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. In other words, the king is coming and he's going to go on a path, prepare that way for him. Make a straight path for him to come, for his kingdom to come into your life. He's coming. And then a little further, he says, John says, I'm baptizing you with water, but he who's coming after me is much mightier than I. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. He's coming and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, the king is coming. This is a positive thing. It's good. Now, you know what I need to change my mind about? Is who's the Lord? I can't fix the world's problems. But the king can. When he comes, he's going to put everything right. Many of you know the serenity prayer that's very popular in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. That, that prayer is helpful because it, it, it gives us the ability to say, there are things I can change. Give me the strength to change the things that I can and, and the serenity to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. The fact that the king is coming means I can stop trying to fix all the world's problems. I'm not the savior, and you're not its savior. The king himself is, and he's coming. And so we can be at peace for the time being with things. We want to change the things that are in our power to change, but then we let him be the Lord and the savior. That, again, is good. Another one is verse 10. In verse 10, it says, uh, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we hear fire right away, and we go, ah. And maybe you miss the fact that there will be good trees that will be left standing. We have a lot of growth happening in our county right now and all over the city. Imagine a swath of land that a developer is going to develop. They usually go in and they mark any tree that is good with a big ribbon before the, the ground team comes in and clears it. So, hey, that oak tree, that's a good one. They put a big ribbon around it, tie it. Don't cut that one down. Don't cut that one down. Don't cut that one down. All the other scrub pine, tear it out. All the palmetto, tear it out. We want those trees to be left. This is a positive thing. That means that, that God has actually made a way for us to be spared. There's a good news here. And, and the fruit of that tree will remain. So in John chapter 15, Jesus says, you can't do anything unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he said, it's my Father's will that you would abide in me and bear much fruit and that your fruit would abide, that your fruit would last. So, so think about this. You are able to do something in this life, many things, that have eternal significance. They won't just be worn out once you die. Your fruit can abide. It will go beyond you. It will matter for eternity. Again, this is good news, but we have to change our mind about that. The fruit that will abide is the fruit that comes from us abiding in Christ, not just my own strength and my own efforts and forcing my will on something. I'm going to do good, I tell myself. No, I need to do it with God, and then that fruit will abide. And then verse 11, the Holy Spirit is promised. What Jesus has made possible for us through repentance is coming to have him come and live in our hearts, which is awesome because it's both his presence in your life and it's his power. It's his power to be transformed. And we really need that. All of this is on the good side of things as um, motivation for us to want to repent, motivation for us to want to change our mind. God's power, not my own power. That's a change of mind. So these are some of the good. You could probably pull more out of this. It's a rich 12 verses. But let's talk about the bad. And by the bad, I mean the things that we perceive as negative. They're, they're not good things. One, repentance is a universal need. The people were coming out to John the Baptist, and they were confessing their sins. The fact that they all had sins shows us something about that society. That society had all kinds of ills and problems that needed change. And where does change start? It has to start with each one of us. And we don't like to say, I'm a sinner. But the scriptures show that the only way to come in is to acknowledge that truth, repent of it, and turn to the Lord. Jesus taught that those that claim they are able to see that they're spiritually well are actually still blind. It's when you acknowledge that you're sinful and broken and blind that he then can heal you and then gives you spiritual insight. So we have this perpetual need to repent. His message started this way. Jesus has started that way. Peter and, and Pentecost, his first message was repent. Paul met many places in his epistles. And then John, do you know there are seven churches in the revelation of John? Five of them are told from Jesus, you need to repent. You're doing this thing well, but you need to repent of this. Five of the seven churches in revelation that are in Asia Minor. The message is consistent. Repent, repent, change your mind, change your mind. And of course, your behavior that comes with that. And then there's verse 7, talking about the wrath to come. Nobody likes to hear about this. There's unquenchable fire in verse 12. And we hear that and we think, ah, oh, fire and brimstone. I don't want to hear that. But let me tell you something that haunts me from a video I saw years ago. You know, the, the magicians and the comedians, Penn and Teller, 
Um, Penn Gillette is one of them. And he had a man come to him after one of his shows. Uh, I think it was in Las Vegas. Very complimentary. Hey, Penn, love the show. It was really good. You guys are brilliant. It was so entertaining. Thanks. Guy came back the next night and brought a Bible and some Christian literature and said, I, I really care about you and I know God does too. I want you to know that, that judgment is coming on everyone, but God has made a way for us to avoid that. That his son died on a cross in our place. He took our judgment. If we repent and trust in him, then we're spared. And, and there's a video of, of Penn talking about this where he's, you know, he's not a believer. At least he's been pretty outspoken to not be a believer. And he was very sincere and he said, I, I got to commend that guy. I'm, I'm taken aback by him. You know, he cared enough to actually come and tell me this stuff. And if you really believed that people who don't trust in Christ are going to suffer in hell, if you believe that and know it, how much do you have to hate a person not to come and warn them? And when he said that, it cut me to the heart. And I thought, oh, that's such a tough thing to hear. But all through the New Testament are these warnings. John the Baptist is saying, this is a real deal. Jesus is coming back. There's really judgment. Don't wait for that. God's made provisions so you don't have to go through it. This is good news. And the judgment, we talk about it in the creed. He will come to, ju to judge the living and the dead. It's not just um, for those who are not Christians. Christians will be judged too. Our works will be tested as with fire. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. And he says, you're building with your life something. And be careful what you build with, what your construction materials are. If you build with straw and wood and hay, when it's tested in that day by fire, it will be burned up. You, if you're a believer, will be saved, but nothing of your life will make it into eternity. Nothing of it will matter. Whatever you've done will not have any eternal significance. It will all be burned up. So he says, build with precious materials, with gold and silver and things that can pass through the fire and will be of eternal value. So consider what you're building with because this fire is coming. And now you're thinking, oh man, that was the bad. What's the ugly, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and in this passage, and remember, this is all, this, I think this passage is all incentive for us to really consider where is my mind not on the things of God? What do I need to change about my life to bring it into alignment with his kingdom? Now, the ugly is the, the religious leaders. So in verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, hey guys, so glad you came. Really good to see you. No. He said, you brood of vipers. He called them snakes. It was the most inhospitable welcome you could get. They walked all the way out to the wilderness and he said, you brood of vipers. He probably pointed and he was probably really weird about it, I'm guessing. It's not in the text, but I'm reading that in here. But it was, it was pretty unwelcoming. Who warned you? to flee from the coming destruction. The ax is at the root of the tree and it's going to be cut down. Any bad tree will bear bad fruit. That's the ugly. The, the deal is these guys were externally, they looked really righteous and good. They built up this life that looked so impressive to others, but inside it was not. They had a heart problem. They were full of pride. They thought they were better than others. They thought they deserved the kingdom of God. And and John knew that right away, and he said, you, you, you call on Abraham, and you think because you're descendants of Abraham, you're going to get in? Oh, no. God can raise up from these stones, children, for Abraham. You need to repent. You need to become clean on the inside. And you know how you become clean on the inside? You got to cry out to God to do it. He's the only one that can heal a heart. He's the only one that can change you, but he does. He does change hearts. 
That's part of that grand invitation. He can actually make a bad tree good, and then once he makes the tree good, the fruit it bears start to become good fruit. And James the Apostle says you can tell what's on the inside of a tree by its fruit. The fruit doesn't save it. The faith in Jesus does. But for somebody who actually knows Jesus, their life starts to bear fruit that line up with Jesus. That's the test. So you can look and see, well, their fruit does not look good. The core is probably bad in that tree. Wow, the fruit looks good. The core is probably good in that tree. Jesus taught us to do that. And Jesus is the one that changes us. And he invites us, though, to repent, to change our mind about him so that he then can do those changes. He doesn't force himself on us. He invites us to invite him in. He's made a way for us to have access to this kingdom. All of this is about having the habit of a change of mind. So think about some place in your life that is not in line with God's kingdom. In light of his, his pending return, what do you need to change? Ask his Holy Spirit for help with that, for the power to do it. Take every thought captive to Christ so that his mind is your mind. And make this a regular thing, not just once, not because you heard one sermon or not because it's Advent, but make it a habit of repentance regularly. God, help me change my mind. Is my attitude right on this? What do I need to change my thinking about? And then the behavior that goes with that. Invite him to search you. Invite him to go into that secret place and do that work where no one else can see and then let your life start to bring forth the good fruit. That's what John is inviting us to. And Jesus is saying, come to me so that I can help you with this. So I want to pray and invite you to join me. Lord, we are very complicated in many ways. Sometimes we don't even know our own mind or our own heart. But you, as we've already prayed, our hearts are already open to you. You already know everything about us. So I pray that you'd give us the courage to trust you. I pray that you would help us be quick to repent, quick to change our minds where needed, and that we would experience your kingdom. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.